Hello and welcome to Birkbeck Voices, the monthly podcast from Birkbeck University of London. I'm Andrew Youngson. And I'm Bryony Merritt. Each month we're out and about in the college speaking to academics, students and members of staff. This month we've been speaking to Dr Fiona Candlin and Professor Alex Poulavasilis about a new project to map Britain's independent museums. Dr Christina Julius about her forthcoming event showcasing her research on the topic of honour killings and violence. And we hear the dulcet tones of Birkbeck Development and Alumni Assistant Lucy Hickey. So let's get going. First up, research focus. Birkbeck students are lucky that our university is within easy reach of many of the major cultural institutions of London, including the British Museum. New research being carried out by Dr Fiona Candlin in the Department of History of Art and Professor Alex Poulavasilis in the Department of Computer Science and Informatics will uncover some of the lesser-known museums across our capital and country. They've been awarded over £1 million by the Arts and Humanities Research Council for a new project called Mapping Museums. The project will create a data set of independent museums in the UK that have opened or closed since 1960. The data will be searchable by factors including location, opening and closing dates and subject matter. Dr Candlin, can you give us a general picture of what the independent museum sector looks like and what we already know about it? What we know is that there was a massive expansion in the number of museums at some point between 1970 and 1990. So in the 60s, we know that there were around 600 museums, including that's all museums, national and public sector, and that less than half of them were independent. By the time you get to 1990, you're looking at around 2,500 museums, probably more, and the majority of those new museums are independent. So there's this huge boom in independence. The other thing um, is that they're quite... uh, The new independent museums are also... They're generally small, so they're run with a handful of staff, often volunteers. They're usually set up by special interest groups or community groups. Um, They're not particularly run by professionals and they also tend to concentrate on single subjects so their museums of Bakelite or transport or um, fishing boats they're they're not broader more general museums. Great and um, why is it important to know about the museums that have opened and closed and and all the other sort of uh, data that you'll be collecting in this project? Well there's a lot that we don't know So the different organisations collect data um, on their particular area, but it doesn't match up. And most of those organisations don't collect data on when museums close, and it's generally not searchable or mappable. So what we can't say is where museums start to open up, whether they open up in some regions or nations and not in others, or whether there's any correlation between the place that they open up and the subject matter, um, or between the time they open and subject matter or place. And if we know those sorts of things, then we can begin to tell a history of museums where local, small, community-run organisations are potentially responding to bigger social and economic currents. So one fishing boat run by two blokes in Suffolk is 
something mildly eccentric, if you suddenly find that 90 fishing boat museums all open within five years, then it's a trend. They're clearly responding to something. And so collecting that data will allow us to make those kinds of connections. Um, it's also going to be useful for funders and policy makers because they don't have any longer history of independent museums so they're funding places without any sense of what's closed, what's opened, how the sector's changed. And um, in terms of academia and, and the field of museum studies, is this a, a new area, this focus on, on the independent sector, does this change the way that people are uh, considering museum studies? You have had a focus on the independent sector, particularly in the 80s and 90s in what we call a heritage debate, but they they tended to focus on the larger institutions, so places like Ironbridge and Beamish, which are huge, but those are actually atypical of the sector, which is mainly small-scale community places. Um, and so this project is focusing much more on that grassroots level and that's been done here and there in relation to individual museums so you'll get people that will write about one single museum but this kind of overview hasn't been done within academia before. Right, thank you. Um, and this is an interdisciplinary project um, involving both history of art and computer science. Professor Pulavasilis, what drew you to this project as a computer scientist? For me, this is uh, a really exciting new project. Uh, it allows us to apply recent computational techniques uh, in the integration and search and visualisation of diverse data sets um, in this area where there has so far been very little work done in modelling and analysing and visualising the kinds of data that Dr Candlin has been um, talking about. So this would be data about the museums themselves but also other data relating to employment patterns, transport links um, and tourism patterns. Great. And what do you think are going to be the key challenges in this project? The key challenges will be to, first of all, derive and keep up to date a conceptual model that captures our diverse and evolving knowledge about this uh, space and also to then collate the data and link it to this conceptual model and keep the conceptual model and the data sets in sync with each other as data is gathered and evolves and as the knowledge of the experts and museum studies experts also changes and evolves and we get new insights into the research questions. So certainly one challenge will be working in this interdisciplinary way um, between the computer scientists and the museum studies experts, Dr. Candlin's team, and also the researchers on the computer science side, um, in a participatory, iterative way that allows us to gradually come to an evolved uh, conceptual model and evolved data sets and visualizations and analyses that help to answer the kinds of research questions that Dr. Candlin has identified in this space. Great, thank you. Um, and finally, um, Dr. Candlin, you've already done uh, a lot of work on, on micromuseums and your book, Micromuseology, was published earlier this year. So tell us, what was your favourite micromuseum that you've discovered? Um, I haven't got a particular favourite, although there's a lot that I like. So I'm very fond of the Bakelite Museum in Somerset because it's rather surreal, visually very witty. The Witchcraft Museum in Cornwall because it's quite unnerving. 
Um, and I'm also very fond of Internal Fire Museum of Power, which is in West Wales, and is a collection of early 20th century diesel engines, mainly because they set them all going. Brilliant. Uh, if you'd like to find out more about this project, then there's information on the Birkbeck website, and Dr Candlin is also going to be tweeting about the project using the hashtag Mapping Museums. Thank you both for talking to me today. Thank you. That was Dr Fiona Candlin and Professor Alex Pulavasilis there. Next up, it's the calendar. Honour killing and forced marriage are politically and culturally charged phenomena across the globe, and until relatively recently, the instances of these acts have been largely undiagnosed in the UK. Dr Christina Julius of Birkbeck's Department of Applied Linguistics and Communication is a leading voice on the study of these topics, and most recently outlined their history on our shores in her book Forced Marriage and Honour Killings in Britain. On Wednesday the 10th of August, as part of the Birkbeck Big Ideas series of free public events, Dr Julius will share her research on the topic. Here, she gives an insight into what delegates can expect at the event. Welcome to the podcast, Dr Julius. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Andrew, for having me. Not at all. Just to jump straight in then, what do we mean when we talk about honour killings and violence within the context of British society? Because it's still something that... A lot of us don't really know how that relates to our, our you know, our domestic um, situation. Uh, yes, um, um, and it's a, it's a very good question. And perhaps to help you, um, we can relate it to domestic violence, which is something that perhaps mainstream society is more um, used to and, and perhaps understands uh, more widely. Uh, but honor-based violence relates to um, a number of um, practices which are harmful to women, which are culturally based, uh, i.e. that uh, particular cultures are, are more... Uh, perhaps is more prevalent among those cultures. But this is uh, a very controversial issue because, of course, uh, the definition of uh, honour violence or uh, labelling this particular type of practices as honour violence uh, is, uh, um, is something which is contested in the literature. Some, some uh, scholars um, argue, and I'm an activist, that uh, you are stigmatising particular groups by labelling it as an honour uh, crime or honour uh, violence, whereas others feel that uh, it's very important that we actually um, ensure that the cultural aspects of this particular brand or this particular type of violence is actually uh, uh, is at the forefront of how we understand and how we frame this problem. Mm. So another area that you look at, at in your research is instances of forced marriage. Um, how does that relate to this this wider picture of honour killings and honour-based violence in the UK? Yes, um, the, it's important to understand uh, honour-based violence in the context of uh, an spectrum of violence, which includes a number of um, different practices. Um, we're looking at um, for female genital mutilation, on the one end of the spectrum, which usually uh, occurs in, in younger women and girls. Uh, and, and then we get to the stage of marriage uh, in which some girls and women are forced into marriages uh, to which they have not given consent. Now, this will result in them uh, invariably uh, experience, experiencing domestic violence within those marriages. And therefore, we have the issue of forced marriage. And if we continue in the spectrum, uh, 
uh, we have the the issue of honor uh, sorry of um, honor killings uh, events um, women events who are experiencing that type of violence cannot be controlled and they're ultimately killed so honor based violence encompasses a whole range of different practices which are all harmful to women and girls uh, and, and that is how we understand uh, this very complex issue so it's again it's a spectrum of violence uh, from pretty much from the cradle unfortunately to the grave mm. as you said right at the start there it's a, a very controversial very politically charged and sensitive issue um, but wh- where are we seeing honor-based violence today in Britain and why and by by where I mean you know what areas of society what what cultural pockets um, what you know geographically where are we seeing this and why um, it's a very complex picture because we don't have the data uh, we do have some data but because of the complexity of the issue and the difficulties in actually gathering that data we don't have a complete picture what we have are different sources of information from the government, uh, from the police, police reports, uh, from um, voluntary sector organizations and service providers. Now, what we know so far, and again, is, is an, we need to understand that it is an incomplete picture, uh, is that we're looking at uh, something between five and 8,000 cases recorded, um, uh, uh, and the forced marriage unit is the main um, uh, government agency that is actually looking and dealing with these cases. They have a helpline um, and um, of course, they they uh, they, are, uh, they gather information. Uh, just to give you a sense of the scale, uh, the latest figures, and these are from 2015. Uh, the forced marriage unit um, gave support uh, in possible cases of forced marriage to uh, in 1,220 cases, uh, and they were receiving approximately 350 calls. Uh, per month. So this is a considerable problem. We have seen uh, in the past um, other figures. Um, for example, in 2010, the uh, ICRO, which is the uh, Iranian and Kurdish uh, women's rights organization, one of the main service providers looking and dealing with these issues. Uh, they did a Freedom of Information Act request, and that gives you a sense of how difficult it is even to get those figures that you actually have to go through those channels. Uh, and they actually... Um, found that uh, over 2,800 incidents of honour-based violence have been recorded uh, to police across the UK, but they was, they, these were, uh, they, they believed underestimates of the real picture. Um, we don't know the exact figure. Uh, we, and this is just uh, in terms of forced marriages. We, uh, we know that uh, in the region of 12 honour killings are happening in the UK every day every year. Uh, and if we look at the issue of forced uh, female genital mutilation, again, uh, we have now for the first time annual statistics uh, from the Health and Social Care Information Centre, which is uh, groundbreaking in terms of how far we've come as a society to look into these issues. And again, uh, the latest figures from 2015-16 uh, show that uh, 5,700 new rec- newly recorded cases uh, happened during that, uh, that period. Uh, it's important to understand as well well, the, the communities you ask in which it takes place. Now, again, um, it's, it's, it's important to um, to understand 
the the picture it's incomplete so again we uh, it, it's it's um, difficult to um, to actually identify which communities but what we know points in the case of female genital mutilation uh, to uh, the MENA region uh, the um, North African Middle East and North African region countries uh, and over 90% uh, of girls and women uh, whose country of origin was known in terms of uh, female genital mutilation were born in an African country and if we look at forced marriages, um, again, we know in particular that uh, Pakistan comes at the top of the list in terms of being overrepresented in the forced marriage spectrum. Uh, and uh, the latest figures from the forced marriage unit um, point to over 44% of the cases uh, being uh, of Pakistani origin, uh, um, in terms of those who um, who were um, affected. Uh, and then the next group is Bangladesh, 7%, and India, 6%. But again, we're looking at Southeast Asia, uh, Southeast Asian countries. Um, however, we know that uh, forced marriages, honor killings, female gender mutilation ac- happens across uh, all sorts of communities and across all sorts of countries. So it's a very widespread uh, and global phenomenon. It sounds from the way that you're describing it from the academic perspective as well as a campaigning um, perspective. It's a very moving picture, something that is is very fractured and, and hopefully starting to coalesce into a more understandable image. Um how has this picture changed over the past two decades? Um, for example, in terms of uh, how, how uh, legislation has formed. Uh, this is a very good question and indeed we've come a long way and I'm glad to report that the UK is at the forefront uh, of the fight uh, against honor-based violence and, and we really uh, have been uh, pioneers um, in, in many senses. And let me just give you a, a, perhaps a, an idea in terms of uh, forced marriage. Um, we have now legislation in 2014, the Antisocial Behaviour Crime and Policing Act, which criminalises forced marriage. So in the UK it's a criminal act to force somebody to marry without their free and full consent. Uh, but we, it has not been uh, uh, like this at all for a long time. And we have to go back to the 1990s, and in particular 1997, when we have a 1999, when, when we have a greater representation of women in Parliament. And that has already started to um, open the way for um, greater attention to women's issues. We have um, uh, service providers from the um, minority ethnic sector, which have been uh, the main leaders uh, of uh, raising these issues for many, many years. Um, but it has been a very localised feature for a long time. And it was only uh, from the 90, late 1990s that we've started to see a sea change. Um, so we have come a long way. We have made a lot of progress. And of course, we these are issues now that are discussed openly and globally because they affect uh, every country pretty much and every community. However, uh, there is still a long way to go. So you're going to be touching on on what we've just spoken about here and and more um, at an event coming up on the 10th of August for the Big Ideas series, the Birkbeck Big Ideas series. what can you tell me about uh, what attendees at that event can expect? Yes, I'm, I'm really and I'm really excited about the event. I think it's great that um, we are going to be discussing honor-based violence as one of Burbick's big ideas, and I think it's really important and it shows yet again uh, the significance of these issues um, because, of course, we have um, <laughs> lots of communities, lots of girls who are affected by this, uh, and um, we are trying to raise awareness of these issues. I'm, I'm delighted to be able to to um, to help in that 
that, uh, that in that uh, direction. Uh, in terms of the uh, audience, it's really open to to everybody, anybody who is interested in the subject, uh, but also. Um, um, practitioners, uh, students. Um, we hope that uh, we can inspire people to get involved in these communities and in this particular in these issues because they are um, issues that affect us all. This is about uh, human rights issues. It's about the rights of women uh, but ultimately uh, it's something that we need to stamp out because uh, we are the better as a result in terms of being a society that actually uh, we don't have um, uh, children or, or girls who are being forced into marriage that they don't want to, as, opposed, as well as boys, because, of course, while the vast majority is about 80% of cases um, see women and, and girls being forced into marriages, but we also have uh, a, a proportion of boys and men who are actually forced into these marriages. Um, so anybody is, is, is welcome. Um, but I'm hoping that, um, as I say, students, anybody who is interested, as well as academics and, uh, and practitioners. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Christina Julius. Thank you, Fletcher. Last up in this edition of Birkbeck Voices, it's the Birkbeck People slot. The college's community is made up of a multi-talented bunch of students and staff. A perfect example is Lucy Hickey. Not only is Lucy great at her job as development and alumni assistant, she also happens to be a fantastic musician. Here, Lucy talks about combining work and music. I would describe my music as acoustic singer-songwriter... Um, biggest influences are Fleetwood Mac and Tracy Chapman and Beth Orton and Fairground Attraction um, and Nina Simone you know a mix of kind of, I think I'm into um, old school music as well which I hope comes through a little bit in the stuff that I do and I think some of the like modern day singers, I really like people like Kate Nash. I started singing when I was about 14, when I had joined a band as the keyboardist. And I think the singer had been off one week and I filled in and it just started from there really. Um, so we used to do a lot of gigs locally at um, all the summer fates and youth clubs and stuff like that. And I was with them for about five years, um, just doing covers, kind of classic rock covers. And so, yeah, that's how I got into it. I'm solo now and I write my own songs and perform them at open mic nights and gigs around London. My favourite place to play is probably Camden um, and I'll normally try and get there once a week but um, there's a really good open mic in Chiswick and Hammersmith so I do like to mix it up a bit and try different places as well. I really enjoy it. I think the whole experience of doing music and open mic nights is something that can get pretty addictive because of the people you meet there and um, performing and hearing other people perform. You never know what you're going to hear. You never know how you're going to play something. And uh, I think if you play regularly, then it definitely improves the way your music goes. I'm currently 
trying to record an album, which is something that I've wanted to do for a long time. Um, and I finally, finally found somebody who I think really gets what my music's about. And so working with another musician um, to help me produce it is, seems to be working really well. So that's the main thing right now, which I'd love to say is going to take me three months, but it'll probably take me six months to do it properly and market it and everything. Um, but that's what I'd really like to do at this stage. So this song is called I'm Doing Fine and I must have written this about three years ago maybe a little bit longer than that and yeah probably a lot longer than that actually maybe five years ago and it's kind of about a lot of people giving you advice on what you should do in life uh, especially as a young girl who plays music um, and how you know people say that I think you can be judged if you want to go down a music path um, because people can see it as it's very risky and stuff like that and what other things you should be focusing on so that's kind of the main message of the song Well have you got a boyfriend have you met the one don't be silly having fun what are your plans for your future career don't you know you shouldn't be wasting time my dear look at me and how far I am look how many boxes I've ticked off on my life plan don't you wish you had all this too don't worry I'm sure it will happen for you but when I look But I'm doing fine 
You think cause you're older, you're wiser than me You think cause you've been through more, you should let me down gently Before I set my hopes too high Before I live instead of die Well sorry but I don't care anymore I think you should get your facts straight before you sound so sure Of all these do's and don'ts and maybes Stop trying to save me Cause when I look at you I hope you're lying You got a kid in your arms Yet you're sighing A slob on a couch in a tiny flat The man you fell in love with Really isn't all that And you look at me like I'm crazy Cause I don't have a plan You think I'm lazy Well I'm just living a day at a time And thank you very much for your advice But I'm doing fine And that concludes our latest edition of Birkbeck Voices. Thanks for listening. If you like the show, please hit the subscribe button and tell all your friends. As ever, we love to hear your thoughts on the podcast. Just drop us an email at communications at bbk.ac.uk. See See you you next time. time.